Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, or morning, or evening, or whatever time of day you're turning this on. You have stumbled once again into a podcast from the Fleming Foundation. This is one of our ongoing series entitled From Under the Rubble. Perhaps we should have someday a program explaining exactly why we have chosen or borrowed this title from Alexander Solzhenitsyn and his friends. But today, again, on this series, I'm joined by my co-host and sparring partner, Rex Scott. Hey. Welcome, Rex. Ah, thank you very much. This is a really good topic we're going to breach. And it has to do with the nature of these podcasts and what we've leaned towards. And that is uh, the disagreements. And some of it has been edited, folks. So yeah, I'm at a disadvantage here. <laughs> you know, I, I produce these brilliant observations and Rex gets to edit them out. The disagreements that we have, and it may be generational. Other times it's not generational. It's just either I'm flat wrong or the you know, doctor's losing his mind slowly. It's, it's okay. Could you be know, both. I'm thinking it might be. Your generation liked jazz and the Beatles and what music you listen to. Well, I listen to Van Halen and ACDC with Bon Scott only. And uh, Hans Zimmer. You have uh, my sympathy. <laughs> Hans Zimmer and John Williams are the composers of really great movie scores. That's kind of what I term loosely as classical. Yeah, well, it ain't. Yeah. <laughs> you know, my, my father used to tell a joke. He knew a uh, film writer, a, a, a people who wrote scores. Sure. And he said, the old joke is a guy comes home from working at the studio and his wife says tough day composing movie music and he said no it was easy for me but uh, but uh, Rachmaninoff had a hell of a workout <laughs> I see yeah. well in the first place I'd like just like to go on record and this will be my position throughout this discussion which is that the notion of generational differences, that is, I talk about my generation, you right. talk about your generation, and that these, these generations have different tastes and styles, that this, I think, is largely one of the more bogus creations of mostly the 20th century. It starts to come in a little bit in the 19th. Yeah. Obviously, different ages have different styles of art. You know, there's Baroque music, sure followed by classical music, followed by romantic music. And then and heavy metal? Are, no. No, okay. We're talking about music. Okay. <laughs> music. Uh, and this, this, this has always been true. I mean, it's true in the ancient world where, where you, you, you often get a pattern of things that begin very solemn and liturgical and become more and more appealing and dramatic or more and more lifelike in your depiction of, say, the human form. Mm -hmm. And eventually then they become naturalistic where it's got oh, over-the-top emotion, oh, too much drama, too much of human imperfection okay. shown. And then until finally people get sick of that and before long they're going back to like medieval simplicity. Hmm. Hence the hence the, the popularity of Baroque music okay. in the mid So mid like it's a pendulum century. that swings back yeah, and, and there, forth. It's, and so, on the one hand, that that is all true. There are these moods and changes and styles, and they and they do correspond sure. to a large degree to other kinds of things that are happening in society. But what we have today, when uh, and it, it began 
probably in my father's generation, okay. but it certainly was very strong in uh, in the uh, people who you know were teenagers in the sixties. Right. The notion that you don't understand my generation, we're right. fa you know we're we're the generation of James Dean, right. not the generation of you know we're we're troubled, but we see through the hollowness, we see through the phoniness. You know, it's the whole Holden Caulfield catcher in the rye mm. mentality, okay. and I think this is. Uh, a it's it's either a mental aberration or it's a it's a created kind of social disease that serves the ruling class that creates these mythologies mm -hmm. that anticipates a, a, a lot of argument you know Rex, uh, one of the most famous generational terms of the past hundred years is the term the lost generation to lost. refer to people who grew up Basically, during World War One. Okay, that would be and the generation before you, but technically the lost. Yeah, yeah. It is said that Gertrude Stein, who was a uh, creepy, dopey woman from Oakland, California, but she had a lot of money, so she lived in uh, in Paris, and that she one evening turned to Ernest Hemingway and his friends mm -hmm. and said. You are all a lost generation. Right. Now, this has been repeated ad infinitum to refer to Hemingway, Fitzgerald, all okay. the writers of the 20s and 30s, the sure. whole, and the jazz age, the flappers, everything, a lost generation. Right. Well, I've never figured out exactly what uh, Miss Stein meant by any of that, but Hemingway actually tells a story in which they're driving in the countryside, mm -hmm. and they stop to get gas, and this young man who, this is like in the, like, maybe 1925. Okay, 25. And uh, sometime in the 20s, they stopped to get gas, and, and the, the grease monkey comes out, and he said, uh, we're, a, we're a lost generation. He was burnt out in World War I. Okay. And so he has no ambition. He has nothing to live for in particular. He's become very cynical. So she stole the idea from this man, and what he meant was that he was so demoralized by his experience in war yeah. that he could never lead the kind of life that he knew was the right kind of life that his parents had led. And this happens. This happens in war. This happened. Sure. You, if you talk to World War II veterans, they uh, they don't talk a lot about it. I mean, they there are those who have been really in tough combat. Right. Uh, the trauma it has, from it psychologically it has, yeah, it and also changed. physically, for sure. I once uh, I once met a very fine man named Eugene Sledge, and he was a he was a great um, hero in the Marine Corps, an officer in the South Pacific, and he wrote a book on it. And he started telling how the, what the Japanese did to prisoners of war. Yeah. And he started crying. Mm. He said, "What I saw, he went, we'd go into these caves and see where they'd been systematically tortured." Sure. Now this was a very fine, decent, civilized man, but he said we got praised for our marksmanship because all the Japanese dead had a hole, but right between their eyes. He said we didn't take chances with these people. I now, see. see, this is different. What we're talking about now is this idea that somehow style changes, music changes, art changes, social changes. The, for example, the the, the apparent indifference of people your age and younger to the idea of marriage or having legitimate children, that is, children with a legal father and a legal mother, right. that, that this is relatively unimportant to them and that these things are just, well, you know, you do your things your way because that's the way you did them and we do things our way. What I'm saying is, no, there are, there are objective standards of right and wrong, Right. True and false, big and small, beautiful and ugly, sure. and that we can argue about what those standards right. are. But I and you, objectivity, and, subjectivity. Yeah, yeah. But I think on a social level, 
those things that happen that are monumental at that time affect the people sure. of that time. Now, tons of history, in my opinion, is based on that, you know, 15 to 25-year-old where those are the guys fighting the wars, yeah. those are the guys only dealing with the but, most but remember, change. only a minority. Only Now, in the case of the war between the states, it was a huge percentage of Americans were affected by that, and, and yes. a huge number died. In the case of Vietnam, we're talking about a, a, rather, a tiny amount of people who were actually involved. But tiny or great, it doesn't matter. It affected those people. It and does, it but made, it doesn't. It made a very yeah. serious impact, and war is war. When you're, whether you're a Confederate soldier or you're in Vietnam, when you get back, you have something that basically defined you as well, sure. whether you liked it or not. The, uh, it is also true, and this plays more into your hands than into mine, that modern warfare tends to scar the soul uh, mm. more deeply. Yes. Uh, quite apart from these scarifying experiences, and you know, a Roman soldier had to go through this, sure. a Greek soldier. Nothing but, new. War has always uh, remained the same, but, a very tragic but, well, circumstance. Partly yes, partly no. You know, the Greeks who lived through the Persian Wars when that generation, and the, the Athenians called the marathon fighters. Yes. The marathon fighters were looked up to as the greatest people in the history of their country. Really? They were honored and revered. And the people who survived the Persian Wars went sure. on to create perhaps the most powerful, influential civilization the world has ever known. Many times after these, these terrible wars, cultures and civilizations get a real spurt of energy. Right. This has not happened in American wars, but it did happen, for example, you know, after the Persian Wars, the Spanish Armada, the, right. the Spanish attempt to, uh, to conquer England. This coincides with the rise of Shakespeare and the, the Elizabethan theater. Seems Our, like after the Civil War there was kind of a boom there. There, wasn't there? Something, but you know, there uh, what happens is the so-called Gilded Age, where the boom is stock jobbing, you know, trying to manipulate the, the currency, trying to corner oh, the see, silver okay. market. The cabal of crooked businessmen right. who took over the American government and ran it like they owned it. And by the way, they have never gone away. <laughs> so that the evil, quite apart from who's right and wrong in the war, the best people in the in New England, like Henry Adams, sure. knew that his that he had lost his country as much as Southerners had lost their country. War is a young man's game. Yeah, wasn't it? I think Shakespeare referred to the ages of the, the seven soldier. ages of man. There you go. Thank you. I, uh, and I think that uh, since war is a, a young man's game, that age is the same as it was a thousand years ago, as it is right now on the premise of what that person is going through and what their what their priorities are what they think is important what they what they want to do they're they're in a different place than a guy who's you know 50 plus and thinking i got to start thinking seriously about retirement or a kid that's 10 years old and he's going hey where are my toys no it's true there you know of course roman soldiers enlisted for a long duration sometimes you know 20, How long? 30, 20 30 years you know, really for a long time wow and in the early days they were not supposed to marry as long as they were on active of duty. And, really? And in fact, it, it, it was an old tradition. It goes into the British Army that you're, uh, they were out, the enlisted men were not supposed to be married. Sure. So, uh, military careers are different in mm -hmm. each age, and the experiences are somewhat different. Yes. Obviously, you know, it's, it's one thing to be stabbing somebody with a sword. It's another thing to have bombs dropped on you. But still, your point is, 
is well made. And similarly, the life of the student. Obviously, what students mm. study, how okay. they study, the styles of teaching, these things have all changed over the past 3,000 years, and yet there are things that are comparable, and when you read the life of, say, a medieval student you know, studying theology right. at the Sorbonne, you could recognize certain things. They had, for example, famous raucous drinking songs about uh, sex and death mm. among medieval students singing them in Latin. We don't sing them in Latin, but I mean, uh, <laughs> no. the song, we, st we still sing about sex and death as, uh, as right. students. But the point that I was raising in all this is, yes. on the one hand, there are the Shakespeare's Ages of Man, which right. correspond a lot to a very old tradition. You find this kind of thing talked about in Greek poets in the 6th century BC. Okay. So it wasn't so a new idea with Shakespeare. No, no, no. no. It's Everybody a, it's understood a, there were facets that yeah, uh, it's a, a man platitude. goes through. Yeah, it's a set of stereotypes that are largely true. On the other hand, yes. on the other hand, in the past, say, 100 years or so, we have developed this idea of labeling generations. Okay. You know, and in fact, even looking backward, we'll talk about, oh, well, that was a generation that grew up between the Punic Wars or whatever. The ancients didn't think like this. People mm. in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance didn't. Now, the Renaissance, they thought they were living through a unique period, but it wasn't, okay. it wasn't generation. It was because of breakthroughs in, in humane learning and science and medicine okay. and uh, acquisition of uh, ancient languages again. But the more modern idea is that some, uh, we have the lost generation. The beat generation, right. the 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 '60s generation. Right. We got we got you know the baby boomers. You got the boomers. We got the we got the generation Gen X. Xers. We right. got the millennials. And the idea that first off that these are somehow universal categories, and so you could say, oh well, you're one of those. You're a Gen Xer <laughs> or you're a baby right. boomer. Oof. We're dealing with generic stereotyping. But the, the stereotype. stereotype. Would I tend to just naturally think that, well, I'm a boomer, so get used to it. Or I'm Gen X, so I'm not going to be here on time, pal. <laughs> There's an argument for the, those seven stages of man where he's younger. Sure. He doesn't have that, that the mentality that you do at 50. He's 20. So there's a... Yes, well, that's certainly true. I mean, old age, for example, is marked by, if you take the stereotype, which is a largely true stereotype, old age is marked by prudence and right. caution, sure. maybe, or at least maturity, wisdom, right. whereas youth is impetuous, reckless, courageous to a fault. You know, you can't uh, send old men charging up a hill no, in the middle work. of a war. They'll say, excuse me, sir, I ain't going. Right. Whereas, you know, some 18-year-old says, that's right, it's for glory. You that's know, right. Ducat decorum est pro patria mori. But anyway, we have this set of uh, more or less true stereotypes about the period of youth, the period where you're a student, the period where you're a soldier. Whereas this notion, everybody of a, in a certain age, is largely manufactured partly by academics, partly in pop culture. I remember when I was in there right. watching television, in the uh, in the late fifties, and they would have a they would try to put on a, a picture of what life was like in the Roaring Twenties. Okay. My father and mother. You know, my father was born about nineteen ten. Okay. So my father would just laugh. Said, Every single thing is ridiculous. The clothes <laughs> are wrong. The the slang is wrong. The music is wrong. It's right, but it's only right for people you wouldn't be willing to associate with. And I remember. Later, like when I'm in my 40s and 50s, mm -hmm. seeing, trying depictions of the 60s, 
Well, they are just as hilariously wrong hmm. as 50s depictions of the 20s are. Right. And someday, Rex, you're going to be, when you're at my age, you're going to be turning on the TV and see something about the fabulous 90s. Or 80s. And eight, 80s and 90s, and you're going to say, I don't recognize anything. That's not how it went. One of the things that surprises people, like especially in Europe, they'll say, well, you know, in America, you have, you know, you have a, an aristocracy, you have heroes, people like the Kennedys that everybody loved. And I said, are you joking? I said, Jack Kennedy was probably would not have been reelected. He was despised worse than Bill Clinton and uh, by a huge percentage of the population. And he got assassinated when he was headed to Texas to try and recover some of his popularity in the state of Texas. History is now manufactured and remanufactured, written, rewritten, revised, reinvented constantly, both in pop culture and in the academy. What I hear you saying a lot is that truths do not change. There have been uh, perversions of it. Let's just say morally, you know, um, you're talked about marriage, um, and it, it's more acceptable these days to, um, oh, you know, she's pregnant. So what? Yeah. Or, or, or they have three kids. They've been married for ten years. Uh, or they haven't been married yeah. for ten. Wait a minute. They haven't been married. Either way. So you could even say we have three kids together. Are you married? I mean, it's common these days. Before, yeah. maybe 20, 30 years ago, well, of course you're married. Yeah. Are we headed from what we were, let's just use America here, uh, 20s, 1910, are we headed towards the good things, the better things, the stronger things in general, then, or are we just going to hell in a handbasket? Sometimes I get that from you. Well, we, uh, we've been going to hell for a long time. I would say it's taken us several hundred years to get into the suburbs, certainly, which is where we are. I see. And it's not something that just happened overnight, nor is it a natural evolution. It is the result of decisions that are made constantly, and it's the effect of uh, an intellectual and social, political, and economic elite class that is gradually transforming the whole world into an image of itself. So this is the way the way degenerate aristocrats behaved in the late nineteenth century. You know, wife swapping, illegitimacy, no. drug use, alcoholism—all of these things you'd expect from a duke in eighteen eighty. You could now get from a General Motors uh, uh, employee working on the line. And what people have to decide: Do I like this or I don't like it? Right. Because. Lots of people don't act like this. They're okay. Marriage is on the decline. It's true, but a huge number of Americans, especially compared with, uh, say, Scandinavians, a huge number of Americans get married and stay sure. married. And so, what we're but by presenting something as generational change, you make it strictly uh, a question of su subjective taste or fashion. You know, back then, they wore leisure suits made out of, you know, double-knit polyester. Yeah. Today, we don't, we wear something equally goofy, but it's it's different. I don't even know what people wear. Yeah, well, everybody went to the 60s bell bottoms. They got yeah. really huge elephant bells, all that yeah. kind of stuff. Uh, a, a lot of the people that I, you know, associate with, they're just as happy to go down to Salvation Army and pick yeah. up something quality for uh, four bucks as to walk into Macy's and spend a hundred bucks, but why did the grunge look never go away? Yeah, it never I went away. Understand. There was the I know I understand the grunge movement in right. Seattle and all that, but people never recovered. Let's just say something that might be considered uh, immoral and more immoral before homosexuality. 
There were certain eras in time that it was acceptable. Didn't they have those kinds of problems a little bit in Rome? I'll give you a, a good example. Okay. Everybody says, oh, you know, those Greeks. Right. Well, first of all, what we know is that the, that the Greeks got married and had children. Okay. We know that the primary orientation of the average Greek male, let's just say the average Athenian male of the 5th century, okay. we know we know that most of the troubles came with guys chasing women, yes. you know, out of marriage, not guys chasing guys. Okay. We also know these people are not Christian. They don't have a right. sense that, you know, God is man is made in the image of God. We have these laws. Right. And so if you fooled around like that, it's sort of like a guy it, today, maybe he's got a steady girlfriend, but he picks up, uh, and he's out of town, so he picks up another girl. Oh. This is wrong, yeah. but how wrong? Do his friends shun him? No. Mm. Historically, it's been how, you know, you've gone from extremes, yes. like, uh, for example, uh, among South Slavic people, because they'd been oppressed by the Turks for so long, and the Turks misused their boys, they would, they would kill a homosexual. Okay. You know, in the, say the nineteenth century, or, but that's one extreme. extreme. And the Greek, the Greek, the Greek, the Greek acceptance of casual homosexuality, as long as it didn't get out of control. Because by the way, if it did get out of control, if you became sort of swishy, you swishy. know, and effeminate and lisped and wore funny clothes and preferred boys then they would put uh, an order that you were no longer to be a citizen and you were no longer to attend the public okay. assembly or a jury trial. And if you persisted beyond that, you could be executed. Okay, let's talk about something else that has, yeah. uh, I think has become uh, more prevalent today than maybe in any time in history. Yeah. Um, last night I was watching The Voice. Well, it was a transgender performance. Yeah. That was pretty shocking to me. Okay, let me say this. What I'm, what I'm trying to argue, Rex, is that, okay, we would all agree 2 plus 2 equals 4. Right and wrong exist. All moral questions are more difficult than mathematical questions. Okay. But still, at the core, it is wrong to rob people. It's yes. wrong to lie to them yes. unless it's in their interest. Okay. Lying to a psychotic who's about to kill himself. Sure, we can find all those exceptions. Right. But there are, just as there are mathematical laws, there are laws of gravity, there are laws of human nature. I'm good with we that. We used to call them natural laws. Right. They're not, they're not exact, they don't operate exactly universally the same everywhere, but there's a rock bottom fundamental truth in them. How we respond to deviation, that's a subject for politics or for, or for having a, a code of manners. That's a, that's, that's a different thing. But the, what I w want us to get away from is the notion of, well, back in the day, right. as kids say today, back in the day you had to do this and now we're free, we don't have to. This, so this is now simply questions of, of morals, questions of aesthetics, you know, good music, bad music, right. good behavior, bad behavior, are now just sort of how my generation feels about it your generation or my generation or, or younger generation, yeah. how they feel about it. This has largely been molded by huge forces that they don't even conceive of. Has it all, hasn't it always no, been molded? No. Are you suggesting that right now in this time of history, we are in the worst case scenario as far as trends towards immorality? What I'm saying You gotta is, answer that. Well, I you know, I haven't lived in all periods of history. Well, but, but nobody it, knows it, more it, about it, it is, than you. It is certainly it is certainly a, a very bad thing. My point is that the cultural forces okay. public education and private schools, the colleges and universities, the informational media, the 
entertainment media. You're saying technology the, is a corrupter well, because no, we have so much excess. No, no, Who is corrupting? The Who's the doing the corrupting? The technology is simply a tool being used by right. a, uh, a ruling class that is trying to destroy one very simple fundamental thing, which is the notion that man is made in the image of God and that at one point in history, God became man to redeem mankind. Okay. This, there's been a war against this for 500 years. And so, for example, one aspect of this war is to alter the relations between the sexes. It's to say, well, women should be head of IBM, women should be president, so we need Hillary Clinton. Boy, talk about a setback for feminism, <laughs> the whole Hillary Clinton right. political career. Yeah. But also that your gender is whatever you choose. This is fundamentally trying to destroy the whole notion, male and female created he them, quoting from the Bible now, Sure. and they will destroy differences between man and beast, or even organic and inorganic, right. because this is a rage to destroy anything that is human. Right. And hence the worship of robots and sure, the, of course, the, the of future course. of that potential um, religions. Could I be. don't know if uh, this tidal wave can be stopped. I have things in my own personal life that I can make known. Uh, if I dis disagree with my brother, if I disagree with my sister, my family, I can say, you know, as for me and my household, we will, well, yeah. in essence, serve the Lord. And we don't believe in that. Homie, don't play that because yeah. that don't work. So, in essence, yeah. so we can make a statement about it, but uh, this idea of subjectivity and objectivity, from what I hear you saying, is destroying the moral fiber of the world. Yeah, it's, it's and, and and I want to emphasize again, we we refu we refuse to make judgments of any kind. There's no judgment of this is right, that's wrong. This is good. That's bad. Okay. This is beautiful. That's ugly. This is all you know. Uh, Who's going to make those decisions for us? I mean, how do we go about um, uh, reestablishing the laws of who gets to say what's beautiful? I mean, you may love uh, Da Vinci. I may love Van Gogh. But the point of the matter is, how are those right. standards established? The first thing, is what we used to have until say the 1950s or 60s, okay. what we used to have was. A, a body of, of, of art, whether it's painting and sculpture or music or literature or philosophy. Okay. There was a body, the word they used often was canon. It has nothing to do with a, a piece of artillery. Sure. Canon is a, like a, a measuring stick in, in Greek. Okay. And so the, the canon of Greek tragedy, you know, is Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides. Okay. Those are the people we learn what tragedy is, is, it really is with the canon of like classical music we right. got was or, it the bible canonized yes of course okay so and it's a collection we, of things yeah. that are become the standard they become the standard they become the, the 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 test by which we judge other things and of course our canon includes greek and latin hebrew and christian scriptures it also includes things of the middle ages like dante it includes of course shakespeare it includes french theater it includes the english novel so we have a lot it's a big canon and there's a lot in it. Okay. But you were telling me that you found Homer boring. Well, it, once you have a canon, you see, it's a, it doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what I say. What matters is, gee, most of the people who have counted in the world 
have gone through and, and, and read this and got something out of it. It's something we share like water and air as part of our inheritance. Okay. So, like, for example, I like certain things, like let's say certain English poets that I know are considered very minor. I happen to like them. I'm not going to change my taste. I see. On the other hand, I'm not going to turn around and say Lionel Johnson is a greater poet than Milton and Shakespeare right. because you know he's he happens to be something I like. And so the ability to begin to distinguish between something that has been universally praised by the great, good, and wise, yes, like say Hamlet, just to take an, an English example, right. or <clears throat> or or. For, I'll give a good example. I don't like Charles Dickens, and I think I'm right in the reasons I don't like him. I don't like okay. him for moral and aesthetic reasons. Right. There's no way to kick Charles Dickens out of the canon of the great books That's of right. English literature, so I accept that, and I and therefore I've read all of Dickens, most of it twice, and I can talk with people who like Dickens and talk appreciatively about Dickens. Now, not everybody is going to read all the works of a writer they hate, Right. But to begin by accepting, okay, like it or not, Johann Sebastian Bach is a great composer. Yep. Haydn is a great composer. They got skills. Mozart is a great composer. They got skills. And they they have done things which we then can judge music by. All Eddie Van did. Halen re, <laughs> reorganized. Honestly, you've got to give me a chance. And everybody else started building on top of that. It's the same sort of situation. You can't argue that Eddie Van Halen is a very, very skilled musician. How he used that music may not be to your liking, but he still is skilled. I don't know if I would want to use tools to classify beauty. I, uh, you know, I, I usually look at something or hear something and say, wow, that sounds good or that is beautiful. And then the next thing I, I think of uh, generally is, how did they do that? Yes, well, that's an important question. We can't, we can't settle everything today, Rex. And so we can't settle, for example, whether Eddie Van Halen is, is, a, is a musician, much less a great musician today. <laughs> right. What we can settle is okay. that if you're saying, how, how do you respond? In a world going a little bit crazy or yes. very crazy, how yes. do you respond? Your first answer was a very good one. That is, you can respond in your life. You can live life as if you're serious. In right. other words, there are things I don't approve of and they're not going to go on in my house and they're not going to go on in my life. I'm going to be truthful, right. honest, fair, decent, and I'm not going to... Uh, now, on the other hand, does that mean that if you have a friend who says, you know, I'm, I'm gay, right. that you then become rude to him, you spit in his face? Right. No. no. You, he, st he still can be your friend, but you now they have to start drawing certain lines. Yes. I have homosexual friends who sometimes never shut up about it, and I have to say, look, I don't want this coming into my ears or my head. All right. You know. Uh, by the way, one of the things that I find most distressing today, more distressing than transgender, okay, is uh, you know, it's what guys have always told dirty jokes. They've always had locker room humor. It's always been you know bad. And I'm not saying right. I'm above all of it. Okay. But I'm saying that when I hear men make sexual references about their own wives or girlfriends, then I get disgusted. The women in your life right. should be protected. Again, having a sense, an objective sense of right and wrong, or an yes. objective sense of true and false, or an objective sense of what's good English usage and bad English usage. I mean, it's all the way, it all comes back to the, to the analogy of mathematics, you know. Yes. Two plus two equals four. I think we both see things 
uh, happening in the world yeah. that are not headed in a right direction. But I do believe that we still have strength and power in our families, in yeah, our lives, I, I agree in entirely. our workplaces to, to make can, a difference. It's not, it may we can, end up going to hell in a handbasket, but better. not on my and watch. We can, and we can make them better. Because, for example, uh, guys who start talking dirty about their wives in the workplace or their girlfriends, right. you can, or, or talking dirty about the secretary. I only watched one episode of yes. the animated TV show King of the Hill. Right. But there was a King of the Hill episode where Hank Hill has to face this at the office, and it turns out the guy who's polluting the, the, the atmosphere, there's something seriously wrong with him. Oh. And the thing is, you can begin step by step just to take charge of your own life. Right. And if there is are things that you enjoy but are but you know are bad for you and bad for others, like for example eating at McDonald's, oh. then you can stop it. Well, you can be uh, part of the problem, you can be part of the solution, yeah. I guess in the final analysis that's That's simplistic. what the Black Panthers used to say. Really? If you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. Well, they would scream that at me every day as I w went to class. Well, I can't. They might have been radical, but well, they good, were no, it's probably good, right. On the other hand, you could just leave people alone. <laughs> yeah, and just let them yeah. try to lovingly figure yeah. them through their difficulties. But the, the first step, as I say, the first step, why I wanted to have this conversation is that yes. it is not. The first step is to understand we're not just talking about fashion. Right. We're not talking about what the, the Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers, sure. you say potato, I say potato, right. you say to, let's call the whole thing <laughs> off. No, these are not just changing fashions or questions of taste. There are, of course, wide areas, yes. you know, where people, you like the Rolling Stones, or I like the Beatles, or whatever. Right. These are subject, these are not worth uh, really much arguing. Well, in that respect, then, I agree with you totally. Well, it's a breakthrough. <laughs> thank you very much, Rex, and thank you for listening, ladies and gentlemen.